Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Belinda Fetke is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out her first appearance on Boundless Body Radio in episode 314, which is personally one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. In that episode, we interviewed Belinda and her husband, Dr. Gary Fetke, and discussed the reasons why her husband was targeted by the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency and the Tasmanian Health Service for practicing a low-fat or a healthy-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. Belinda took the initiative to research the biohistory of religion and its influences on nutrition policies and dietary guidelines. Her research revealed a massive influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, their tax-free financial stake in cereal and plant-based food companies, and their impact on what we are told to eat. Belinda and Gary opened the Nutrition for Life Diabetes and Health Research Center, which provides nutritional care around Tasmania and Australia. She is an advocate of a low-carbohydrate, healthy-fat lifestyle for various health benefits, including the reversal of type 2 diabetes, obesity, and other chronic diseases. Belinda Fecky, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you back to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you so much, Casey, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I've been following the different people that you've been interviewing, and you're you're a legend out there now. <laughs> I was like, wow. It's amazing. Well, so thank you for all the work you're doing. Well, thank you very much. I, I definitely would not go as far as say um, I'm a legend, but I really do appreciate oh. that and I appreciate <laughs> the kind words. This journey is so interesting and I, I've been studying this for so many years, you know, a number of years before we ever started the company and the podcast. There's just special moments. You know, there's a moment like I'm interviewing Nina Teichels for the first time. And I can't even get through the introduction without crying or, you know, talking mm-hmm. to some of my heroes. And I mean it when I say interviewing the two of you was one of my favorite episodes. I've gone back and listen to that four or five different times. And I just, I pinch myself that I get to talk to you wonderful people who have gone through so much and done so much work. And I just really love and respect you guys. And I'm so grateful that you'd want to come back on and share what you've learned in the meantime. Thank you so much. And and likewise, sometimes we think about how hard it was to go through all that investigation that Gary had to go through and 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 doing the work because the reason I had to go into this whole research area was to clear Gary's name and to protect him. I realised, you know, I was I was a quiet, shy person. You wouldn't believe it, but in my past life, and as a professional photographer, I used to stand behind the camera, and you know, I was I was telling other people's stories, not necessarily my own. And when Gary was in trouble for talking about low carb or Originally, he was just talking about reducing sugar. That was all he was talking about. And he got reported to the medical board. So as you know, he dug his heels in and he said, wait a minute, you know, this is even bigger than just sugar, and he just kept going. And then they ended up silencing him. And they took his voice away. He wasn't allowed to talk to his patients. He wasn't allowed to talk on social media. He wasn't allowed to present at a, a conference. Um, they determined that an orthopedic surgeon had no understanding of nutrition, even though the nutrition that he was talking about was really basic biochemistry. It wasn't complex nutrition. It was reduced sugar. It was that we don't need processed carbohydrates because our bodies can make all the glucose we need. He was just going back to the basics. And every medical professional learns anatomy, biochemistry, and physiology at the beginning of the first two years of their course. So he didn't feel like he was doing anything wrong. And I didn't just stand beside him I had to take a step in front and become his voice to give him his voice back. And so it was a really challenging thing, family dynamics, you know, just personal, professional um, intimidation, I guess, that we dealt with for a very long time. And I think 
the incredible thing is we've met the most amazing people on this journey and Gary said he would not change it for a million years. You know, just uh, it's, it's been inspiring and also the people that we were able to help. As you mentioned in your intro, we founded Nutrition for Life in 2014 because Gary was told he wasn't allowed to talk to anyone anymore and coincidentally he'd had a dietitian contact him that same week and say, I'm really interested in encouraging people with type 2 diabetes to go low carb, you know, could I be involved? Can can I work with you? And Gary said, well, actually, I'm silent, so let's start a business. And they did. <laughs> so it was amazing. APRA kept coming after us. The medical board kept coming after Gary and he had to um, let the business go. So our team bought it for a dollar. We just, we just thought it was so important that the resources that we created and the, the business model was just vital to our community. There was over 100 doctors referring to that business when we gave it away. And the team is still, you know, making big changes in this community and we're just so proud of them for continuing to do what they do. So that's amazing. That's amazing. That ripple effect of what you guys decided to go through and and why you were so passionate to fight about is now, again, rippling out and affecting so many people's lives. I think that's so wonderful and beautiful. And it's so amazing that clinic is continuing, even though you guys decided to let it go. I really did want to focus our conversation today on something we get a ton of questions about, which is the blue zones, the blue zones. I think most people have heard (laughs) about them, but we can't talk about the blue zones without talking about plant-based diets. We can't really talk about plant-based diets without talking about Seventh-day Adventist. We can't talk about any of that without talking about your personal story, which you shared a little bit with us. And you also shared it with us in the last episode. But I, I do think it is important to go back and kind of tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how that all came about, Gary's story a little bit, and then and then we can go into the things you've learned until eventually we can get to the blue zones and what the blue zones are. The blue zones. The blue zones. And uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm ready to make this big audacious statement to say that the Adventist health reform message, which is plant, uh, fruits, nuts, and seeds, is literally sweeping across America as we're talking and embedding itself into the very fabric of your society. Yes. With the ripple effect here in Australia. So, Sorry. yes, the blue zones are so important. So let's start at the beginning and that would be fantastic. Um, Gary's whole journey and finding out about the importance of reducing sugar and, and processed carbohydrates in the diet began when he was, well, didn't begin when he was diagnosed. He was diagnosed with cancer in 2000. And It was a very aggressive pituitary tumour at the time, so he required surgery and chemotherapy, um, radiotherapy, and we don't deny that all those things were important because it was quite large when it was found and and it was late. And Gary attributes it in hindsight to a very highly processed um, polyunsaturated oil drowned diet that he pretty much was raised on, and certainly by the time he was in his teenage years, he was... Um, following the dietary guidelines. He's basing his daily intake on um, 6 to 11 serves of carbohydrates per day. But if you look at that triangle that we were given, certainly when he became a medical student, the, the single serve actually included two slices of bread, not one as they tend to say today. Oh, no, it couldn't have been two. So you could have 22 slices of bread put your margarine on it because that was heart healthy and oh, a little bit of jam, that's fine, surely. That's all right. And eat that much carbohydrate per day. And as I say, he, his family had polyunsaturated oils from a very early time. And he just said his body was flamed, inflamed and sick. 
And he just kept pushing through as a teenager, you get away with a lot, but it caught up with him very quickly. And so by 37, he had this terrible cancer. For 11 and a half years, he was on chemotherapy on and off. They'd done a second lot of surgery in 2004. And I just kept watching this man just bounce back up and just, you know, what I'm doing, my purpose in life is to improve the health of my patients and and to be here for my family and do all these amazing things. I I say he's got the perspective of a patient because he'd been a patient so many times. He's had two hip replacements plus cancer and many other issues. Um, he has the spirit of an activist, refuses to give up on, you know, speaking out for public health and, and standing up for his patients. And he's got the um, heart of a healer. So when you combine that into someone, it's a pretty special person. So when he was in 2011, he was told that there wasn't really anything more they could do. And so like most people, who get to a place when they're told by the medical community that, you know, we're really stuck, not sure what to do now, he went to Dr. Google. <laughs> and on there he found um, two guys in America, um, Colin Champ and Dominic Diagostino, who were specifically looking into the role of sugar and cancer and just going, wow, you know, this is amazing that we're seeing that if you give sugar so Imagine in a petri dish, they've got some cancer cells and they put sugar in to make it grow and then they work out how to treat it to kill it. It's pretty much what's happening. Most cancers thrive on sugar. And so there's a lot of issues that create that ability to have the cancer cells in the first place. and, And so it's not that simple, but in other ways it is. And Gary found that reducing sugar in his diet made such a big difference. In fact, over one year, he was able to completely come off his chemo and he's never gone back on it, which is unbelievable. And, and it's the side effects of the chemo, the side effects of all the medications. He was on 15 medications at one stage. Wow. The side effects of chemo for um, prediabetes, for high blood pressure, you know, um, gastrointestinal reflux, just all of these things that were all just adding up. And taking out sugar out of his diet just started to improve things. And unfortunately, because in medical education, you so you taught about anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry at the beginning, and then the rest of your medical medical education is spent band-aiding sick care. You learn about pharmaceutical things, you learn about surgical things, and it becomes very allopathic. You forget the beginning bit because they send you down this silo. And he he'd forgotten that starchy carbohydrates become glucose the minute you ingest them. Like it, it took a couple of months to go, oh, wait a minute, click, click. <laughs> so, yeah, he, um, he gave up the starchy carbohydrates or reduced them dramatically and just found that he was able to control this um, activity of his cancer, which was incredible. Wow. They couldn't take it all out, but he, he slowed that activity down to, or he went into remission for many, many years. And it's an amazing story. and he saw what was happening to himself in 2011, 2012, and looked at the hospital menus and went, wait a minute, I've got people in here. He's an orthopedic surgeon. So I've got people in the hospital who've got complications of diabetes, um, especially type 2, but even type 1 diabetes. And this hospital menu is just loaded with sugar. They're offered three desserts per day. 
when he worked out about sugar, he was so excited. Like he said to me, Linda, you won't believe it. <laughs> Type 2 diabetes is going to be nothing. It's not even going to be here next year. Wait till I tell everybody. You raced up to the dietetics department. Have you heard about sugar? And they just didn't want to know. And instead of rejoicing with him, they reported him to the medical board. <laughs> it's like, where's, where's this heading? You know, why are they protecting the dietary rule books? Why aren't they listening and, and seeing someone who's seen so much improvement in his own health, starting to see it in his patients and still feeding people in a hospital massive amounts of sugar and carbs? You know, Gary said, we need healthy protein. We need healthy fats for these diabetic ulcers to heal. It's the only way they can heal them or reduce them or you know, prevent them in the first place. There wasn't even cheese on the menu. It was all low fat. It was fake custards, sugary custards. Like where was, where was the health in these menus? And so he became quite a loud public advocate. He got into the newspaper a few times. He got to parliamentary inquiries about how, how we can improve hospital food and get rid of all the junk food in hospitals. I don't know if we mentioned last time, but um, when I was a nurse back in the old days wearing the nurse's cap, the, the women who sold magazines and different things to patients, they're called the pink ladies here in Australia, and they'd bring cigarettes to patients in their bed. Wow. Yeah. I've heard you talk People, about that. That's so interesting. Smoke. Yeah. And, and so they've worked out the harms of cigarettes in, in um, public health. And so they don't sell cigarettes in hospitals anymore, but they sell a lot of sugary drinks, highly processed foods, and base hospital menus on starchy carbs. So then by the time Gary got, oh, so then by the time he was moving on further in 2014, as I say, he was reported to the medical board. And it took them two and a half years to create this determination that he was going to be the only medical doctor in the world silenced from talking about nutrition and we just went, wait a minute. After he was reported, and because of the say, I've just seen everything that he's gone through and how passionate he is about changing and improving health, changing lives. I just went, darling, I'm watching you talk about the science till you're blue in the face. The people who are making the guidelines aren't listening. This doesn't make any sense. I think I mentioned before too that I never went to university. I was uh, trained in the hospital system, so it was very hands-on. It was very practical. Either something made sense or it didn't make sense. You know, we certainly had to do the academic side. We had to do exams and everything else, but I wasn't in a university where we were, that's all it was. You know, our research was on the wards. It was with people. And so then when I became a photographer as well, I, I self-taught myself. I ended up becoming the um, president of the Tasmanian branch of the Australian Institute of Professional Photography. So I'm a very determined person to learn and teach and, and acquire new skills. And so when this was happening with Gary, I think because I didn't have that academic siloed research background, I wasn't stuck in this sphere that only looked at something, I was going, this doesn't make sense, so I'm going to investigate. And the first thing I investigated was the expert witness that was brought into Gary's case to determine if an orthopedic surgeon could talk about reducing sugar. And I, I have to admit, I had incredible cognitive dissonance. I just went, he has to work for the sugar industry. Why else would you know, the biggest gun in nutrition science come in and say orthopedic surgeon can't just talk about something so simple? And 
So it came as no surprise when I found he was working for the cereal industry. And, and a couple of years later, uncovering documents that the cereal industry, we had four um, industries here that had got together for a collaboration. And it was Kellogg's, Nestle, Sanitarium and Freedom Foods. And they created this group called the Australian Cereal the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum, which traded as cereal for brekkie. And in the documentation that I found online, and I don't know how it was leaked, I don't know how it got there, but I discovered it. And it stated that they had targeted Gary for active defence in these documents. And this was part of a collaboration they were doing with the Dietitians Association of Australia at the time. So they were paying them $23,000 a year for this corporate partnership and part of this partnership was that the Dietitians Association was to use their members to influence, protect, and actively defend cereal grains and sugar. Wow. I think this is, so if you consider the Dietitians Association of Australia is not only the um, accrediting body for dietetics, it's the regulatory body and the educational body. Dietitians aren't going to question the education they're given by their parent body and they're not going to question it when they regulate them they're not going to question it when they accredit them this is education coming from a cereal industry paying the dietitians association to use their members that was the exact wording and when I spoke to dietitians I said did you have any idea and and um Gary Ruskin's just come out with this incredible um paper in America um the US right to know showing that the American Dietetics Association, I think it's called the AND now, A-N-D, they weren't just being sponsored by food industry, they owned shares in industry. And he's like, this is unbelievable. You know, this isn't fair. Where's the transparency that we don't have to be eating this massively highly processed, high-carb, low-fat diet? Is it purely because of your um, financial conflicts of interest? You know, so... I, I've been challenging this for a while and I say, understanding that this man worked for one of the cereal industries that was involved in this at the time of Gary's investigation, this was all happening. You go, wait a minute. I was showing this to the medical board and they were saying, oh, no, we don't believe you. Mark Walker says it's not a, not a conflict of interest. It's not a problem. I said, um, excuse me, it is. They did nothing about it. So then you have to question, was the medical board also in bed? with industry or were they, you know, it, I can't find the documents showing that they are, but I certainly found it for the Dietitians Association of Australia. Wow. So what, what do you do then, Casey? That's crazy. That's crazy. I want to go back to that original marketing campaign and I'll say, I don't want to throw out the, or the whole marketing campaign out because I love the name Brecky. So if we can get that going, I love the name Brecky. I hope that catches on <laughs> around here. It's, it's just insane. Uh, so I was talking earlier today with another podcast host, Marin Morgan. We've had her on our, our on, on our show as well. Um, they host uh, her and her, her partner, Jake uh, run death in the garden. They interviewed you yesterday. And I also posted this to Twitter. There's a scene in a show, kind of a funny sitcom um, that plays here 
here in America, and the main character has been spending way too much time in the basement kind of mail room, and he's starting to like chain smoke and drinking too much coffee, and he kind of loses his mind, and he comes up with all this like crazy conspiracy theories about the mail disappearing, and and so his friend walks in and he sees this entire wall with all these post-it notes and lines connecting people, and he's got like imaginary friends, he's going nuts, and I'm like, <laughs> this is what it feels like to study what Belinda has studied. It, it's it's crazy. Like you feel like you need to wear like a tinfoil hat or something like how is everybody yeah. connected to everybody and then we come to the influence of the seventh day adventist church which is crazy and the reason we came to it is because they own the biggest cereal industry here right. in australia this wall behind me i, I was very excited to have this interview here casey but this was our working wall we had not just post-it notes but entire sheets that we could stick up on the wall <laughs> and try and put diagrams everywhere to say Okay, now this is connected to this. This is con- it was it was like a um, yeah a war zone at wow. some at at points, and I think this is this is what it felt like. You know, we're just two public school kids here in Australia. We actually went to the same school. We grew up together in Sydney, and you know we came from the school of hard knocks. We weren't given any privileges. We weren't given. You know, we certainly weren't told anyone could achieve anything great at our school. Um, Gary was. I think one of only three people probably who ever went on to do medicine, um, you know, he was just incredibly bright and had this determination on his own. It wasn't driven from the school. And I just think, you know, they picked the wrong people. I think the medical board or the cereal industry said, yeah, let's quieten him. He's starting to make a bit of noise. People are listening. Different when, so we had um, Sarah Wilson, she was a, a nutritionist who was starting to talk about sugar. David Gillespie was an ex-lawyer who was talking about reducing sugar. But when a doctor comes out and says it, that's the threat. I think they can they can call other people out. You well, you don't really know, you know, and the media can hammer them and the bullying and um, harassment on social media. You know, it, it gets through to people. Oh, well, they don't really know what they're talking about. But when it's a medical doctor who's seeing people with the results, you know, metabolic health um, really affecting their joints, inflammation of their joints, and then seeing these complications of type 2 diabetes, you can't ignore it. So they had to silence him. That was what they had to do. And Tim Noakes, at exactly the same time, 2014, he was also a target. And he was targeted by the International Life Sciences Institute, which was founded by Coca-Cola in 1978. And it's pretty much the food and pharmaceutical industry, chemical industry, um, biotech, whatever else you want to call it. It's fascinating how these industries and and what I came to understand in my big diagrams all over the wall <laughs> was it wasn't just the cereal industry. Coca-Cola was very, very involved as well and the international life sciences. So it all makes sense. And so Tim was a public um, trial and you can read about that. It was incredible. So Tim Noakes in South Africa and Gary was all behind closed doors here in Australia. It's a star chamber. We weren't allowed to have a lawyer. We weren't, it was just shocking what happened to him. And they both, their determinations came out about the same time. Tim got cleared and it took us another two years to get Gary's name cleared. We had to go past the medical board. We couldn't go to a court of law, but we were able to go to uh, the National Ombudsman and challenge the process. And, and I would say that it was because we got onto social media because most people who are, you know, reported to the medical board, even if they did nothing wrong, it's a serious 
um, allegation and people don't want to talk about it. You know, most doctors, this would threaten their patients coming to see them. And he goes, we just went, you're kidding me. This is a joke. And we went really loud. You know, I took over his social media. They're coming after my husband for reducing sugar. We had people writing to the medical board and I don't think they'd ever had that before. I don't think they'd been humiliated. I even started a website, I Support Gary, just to really put the middle finger up to them, <laughs> say, you're kidding me, this is what you're doing? And so I think it was that social media impact from incredible people who are following us and, and were writing to the board. And I just don't think they had any chance. So we were very lucky, but most people don't have that opportunity. So um, hopefully going into this nutrition space will definitely, when they wrote their final um, message back, they actually apologised to Gary, the medical board, nationally, not the Tasmanian one, mm. and, and said that you, know, you will never be investigated for talking about reducing sugar ever again, which suggests that no doctor will be. And I think Gary, he says, um, the pioneers take the arrows and the settlers get the land. You know, he took arrows for so many people and Tim Noakes and a lot of other pioneers in this space. And hopefully now we're creating uh, an area, an opportunity for people to be able to talk about these things without the fear of regulation. Yeah. But the cereal industry is still not happy. And so, yes, my, my research went down this path. The expert witness was working for sanitarium in particular. And vaguely in my head, I'd say, oh, yeah, sanitarium is owned by church. Hmm. Casey, in Australia, Aussie kids are wheat bix kids. We sing that jingle. How do we become part of the church? In Australia, the Seventh-day Adventist Church have a very, very small footprint. They're, and people hardly even think about it. They own one major hospital. Oh, yeah, they feed them vegetarian food when you go there or vegan food when you go to that hospital. One major hospital in Sydney, a couple of little satellite hospitals. They own one university college, which has only just gotten a bit of recognition as a university before that was just a college. They don't train doctors or dietitians or nurses at that at that university. You can do postgrad courses, but you can't do the initial one. So, unlike America, where a lot of people actually get trained in Seventh Day Adventist universities, there's multiple ones in America. It was very hard to work out who was involved in as a Seventh Day Adventist here, in particular, because of that lack of having to train in those educational facilities. But this man had been working for sanitarium on the Wayback Archives. I did work out how to get onto those. Um, I was able to see that he was working for sanitarium from the year 2000 all the way through, right through Gary's whole investigation. He finished in 2016. They wow. actually closed the, the business that he was working in, so they closed it down. I, why are they talking about you know, vegetarian or vegan foods. And, and they, they say vegetarian, but if you look at the, the teachings of the church and going right back, which we will do, um, it's definitely fruit, nuts and seeds. It's, it's vegan. And if you consider when the church was founded back in, I suppose, 1844, really, it was starting to develop, but it was incorporated in 1863. And that's when their prophetess and founder had her first major vision. She had over 2,000 visions and dreams in her life. She claimed from God, which directed her to determine the, I guess, the, the church's 
principles, their doctrines, and lead them into this space where they you know, want to market health and wellness, or especially health. They want to market themselves. Medical evangelism is the right arm of the church and the health reform message is the entering wedge. And this idea of fruit, nuts and seeds, they called vegetarian at the beginning because in the 1860s, there wasn't refrigeration. There wasn't alternatives to flesh meat, milk, eggs and butter. You know, they had to rely on John Harvey Kellogg to invent these things to then be able to move further on. And the term vegan wasn't actually um, coined until 1944. So I believe when they talk about vegetarianism, yes, it had to include milk and eggs at the beginning because they needed, you know, as you know, you can't get all the essential vitamins and minerals and essential proteins and essential fats without those animal products, yeah. animal proteins and fats, unless you fortif have fortification, unless you create and invent foods that potentially take the place, but I doubt they're as bioavailable. One of, the things, one of the things that Ben Bickman yeah. told us is that the, a vegan diet is a diet of the elite because you need to, first of all, have the education to know that you're going to be deficient in diets, and then you need the finances to go pay for the supplements that you're going to need to probably not even cover up those deficiencies anyway. I thought that was a really good way to look at it. Veganism is a diet of the I, elite. Yeah. I love Ben Bickman's work, and I would say he's exactly right. Um, the origins of vegetarianism, if you look at Eastern mysticism, and going back to Pythagoras and Buddha and this concept, it was more about um, not eating animal um, protein, flesh meat, because of um, metempsychosis and this concept that, you know, karma, the soul might go into an animal depending on your karma. And there were some stories where it was good to go into an animal. It was considered a, a great thing towards enlightenment. Other ones, it was, it was a punishment and then you had to work your way back up again. But either way, Pythagoras and Buddha both taught that if you ate an animal, you may be eating the soul of a relative or a friend. So they didn't include that, but they didn't say don't have any animal fats. They had milk, they had butter, they had ghee, they had all of those things because you cannot survive without animal proteins and fats in some form. And so when we talk about Western vegetarianism, which began about the 18th, beginning of the 18th century or 1800s, sorry, um, you're certainly looking at a group of people who were talking about flesh meat and, and quite different to the metempsychosis, they were talking about spiritual purity and this concept that, you know, the temperance health reformers at the beginning of the 1800s were really focused on um, intemperance and they believed that alcohol and cigarettes and all sorts of things but in particular flesh meat would stir baser passions it became this animalizing of people you know people were much calmer were much um more malleable i would suggest if their brains are a little fogged and they're not having animal proteins and fats to really be at a peak physical and um, mental capacity so they were encouraging people to not eat animal fat, uh, sorry, animal proteins, flesh meat. And it was a way of potentially controlling some of the people, you know, getting them to think about things, quieting them down. And also they were very, very concerned about meat causing masturbation. And this was a real theme of the temperance health reform movement, which began in the 1800s. I would say 
Um, it began from a bit of Swedenborg organism and the UK, but William Cowherd came from the UK to the US and set it up and that's where it really flourished in the US. So thanks for that. Thanks. <laughs> and and um, so Ellen G. White wasn't the first person to talk about these things and I think that's an important discussion she tried to teach the church that she was getting all these visions from God and this was important and this was important at different stages, but a lot of the things that she brought into the doctrines of the church had already been discussed by other people well and truly before her well, her time, certainly when she was young, and so I would say she was building on that. But instead of just discussing it like Sylvester Graham as an itinerant preacher on, on street corners and his followers inventing um, graham crackers and different things to encourage people to eat bland cereals and grains and give away the flesh meat. She brought it into the doctrines of the church and determined that, you know, fruit, nuts and seeds were the God-appointed diet for man. That's what she taught. Public health education was the commission of their church. You know, they were the God-appointed church. They were the remnant church. They were they were the spiritual children of Israel. And if the original children of Israel had given up flesh meat and their desire for it, Jesus would have come back then. But she taught that he was telling her that he's not going to come back as a second coming until enough people give up flesh meat because you'll be going back to the Garden of Eden. Your, your rebirth will be back to fruit, nuts and seeds. And if you're still like the children of Israel, and wanting to eat meat, then you cause disruption up in heaven. You know, this, this is not going to be a good thing. She taught that before translation, so this is really salvation, before translation, you will have to give up flesh meat. So they don't make it a, a necessary thing to be part of the church. You can join the church still eating meat, but they encourage people over time to, to get rid of it. And there are Adventist health studies, and certainly the people at the top of the church are really pushing this message that you need to be vegan. And if you look at the, um, sorry, so not only do they talk about this, but they've incorporated the health and wellness. So medical evangelism is the right arm of the church, their health reform message, the entering wedge. They can open doors to hearts and minds of people that would have previously been closed to the gospel. Yeah. So they, they believe that they are Christ-like. but not understanding or really comprehending the fact that when Christ was on earth, as described in the Bible, he was performing miracles to heal people. He wasn't prescribing tablets. He wasn't you know, getting them in and talking to them about their diet. <laughs> he was offering fishes and loaves. So I think, you know, this is quite interesting. And if you consider that biblical Garden of Eden diet, which they really do hinge their, their, um, their whole belief on, this disregards the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy completely in the First Testament. They, they will not recognise that. It completely disregards the entire Second Testament of the Bible. It disregards ancestral diets and evolutionary hunter-gathering. They see no role for animal proteins or fats in the diet. And Ellen G. White was as bold to say that man's ideas of science are not evidence-based because that's putting man's ideas of science above God. And in her mind, God's science was the biblical Garden of Eden diet, fruit, nuts, and seeds. Wow. 
And so you've got people involved in the church who've been just dedicated their entire lives to prove, not disprove, divine inspiration. And, and again, this idea of the Adventist health um, studies right now. So I've got examples all the way through, but the Adventist health studies right now, if you look at the fine print, it actually says that the term vegetarian actually means that having you're having meat less than once a week or meat, animal products, animal proteins. And to be vegan, it's less than once a month. <laughs> but that isn't the message that they're giving to the public, Casey. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. Wow. Well, and so I- this is potentially how they keep their health because they're not completely getting rid of it and they're doing a lot of other things that are good for their health. They don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't take drugs. You know, they live in small communities, they're getting fresh air, you know, all the other bits of their lifestyle complement the fact maybe that they're, they're still incorporating those things into their diet, I believe, to maintain some level of health. But the people who are following in the church, and I've spoken to Seventh-day Adventists, who are really, really sick because they're following it to the T and eating the church's processed foods. Crazy. It's so crazy. I mean, just look around me here in Salt Lake City. We've got tons of Mormons around here. They, I, I can tell you, don't avoid meat at all, but they have a lot of the same practices. We talked about this last time. They don't drink, they don't smoke, and they have been shown to live just as long, if not longer, than the Adventists. Yes. Same with, I, I believe you talked about um, Orthodox Jews. It's a similar kind of a situation. And I love how, yes. how, how you explained that. The way that you explained, like, this is why we're talking about visions that were had in the mid 1860s, but they still impact you today. You might not be yeah. an Adventist, but it impacts you today. What they thought about then still carries through to today. And it's 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 kind of like I said in the last episode, it's like, who cares about all that stuff in the past? Well, you care, we all care because it's still coming through. It's still part of the religion. They want Jesus to come back, which he's he's pretty finicky. He's decided to come back and not come back a bunch of times by now. <laughs> it's about time he needs to come if yeah. he's going to. But anyway, it's just, it's it's so... I don't know. It's just, it's so interesting to see how all that impacts us today in 2022 still because of everything that's happened and because they still want to move that message forward and they're not trying to hide it. That's exactly right, Casey. Until you look back into history, you cannot understand where the plant bias messaging is coming from in today's society. You honestly can't. And I think that was what I was just blown away with when I started looking at sanitarium here in Australia, owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And as an aside, they pay no tax because it comes under the charity status of the church. So they pay no tax. I imagine worldwide on their 21 food industries, which produce over 2,500 different products to take the place of flesh meat, milk and butter. And they, in Australia, Sanitarium pays no tax on their health and wellness programs, which they run in church and communities and in corporate businesses. And, and the Sanitarium um, health and wellness programs are run in America as well. So, you know, it's like they're a hub. I, I say the footprint's really small, but their influence is massive. And sanitarium doesn't just go to America, it goes to Asia, um, the UK, and out into the South Pacific. Their influence out there, specifically with health and wellness programs, with their 10,000 Toes campaign, but it's, it's under the umbrella of sanitarium. So people don't question because it's not under the umbrella of the church. Yep. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's how they get this message through. I was saying yesterday, you know, they're the second biggest educators in the world 
despite the fact there's only 21 million people actually as part of the church. So it's not a big church and yet their influence is massive and health and wellness education is just such a big part of this um, messaging. So I'll jump back to 1844 just quickly so people get a little bit of an idea. Um, William Miller said it was going to be the end of the world in October 1843. And then when they reworked a few of the numbers, it became October 1844. Ellen G. White was part of a group. She was 17 years old at the time in 1844. Jesus didn't come back. Apparently there were 100,000 people who were completely believing that this was going to happen. Some people had sold their houses. Some people, many people had given up their work. A lot of people, most people had given up their other church, you know, a lot of church goers, they'd given up their churches and come to be part of this Millerite movement. They were really thinking it was going to be the end. And so, oh my gosh, suddenly it wasn't the end. Ellen G. White had a vision that the, it wasn't the wrong date, it was the wrong event mm. <clears throat> to explain it all. So this is where the Seventh-day Adventist Church was born out of this great disappointment. Her vision, God told her she was taken to heaven. She was told that atonement wasn't completed at the cross, which is what the Second Testament identifies. You know, this is this is what Martin Luther was talking about. I mean, he's he's in Reformation. It's about faith, and this happened at the cross. Ellen G. White said, "No, no, no, it didn't. It started there, but only a little bit." What happened was in 1844, Jesus moved from his holy place to his most holy place. He went to the second apartment and there he started his work. And I was saying to Jake and Marin, you know, the scary part is for a lot of people in the Seventh-day Adventist church is you don't know. So say that your name came up yesterday, Casey, and Jesus went through and, and blotted out your sins, but you don't die for another 20 or 30 years. You have no intercessor in that time because your name's already been ticked off. So in that entire time, you are being considered, you know, have you sinned? Have you said the wrong thing? Have you done all these things? I believe that's why works are so important as part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, why people have to be part of this medical evangelistic outreach. They say it's total member involvement. It isn't just the doctors. It isn't just dietitians. It isn't just nurses. It's every single person in that church has to be part of this medical evangelism and take it to a level where they can. So whether it's just talking to your neighbour about healthy cooking or vegetarianism or veganism, whether it's having you know, cooking classes, whether it's doing all these things, whether it's running this chip program. And if you look at the facilitator guide, it's got meat, eggs and dairy above alcohol and processed food as the, as the, the toxins that provide the worst health outcomes. So every single person is immersed in this belief and immersed in telling this because when they tell this story, when enough people give up meat, as we've spoken about, or are aware of it and can make the conscious decision, again, the church founded religious liberty. They were the ones who started the Sentinel magazine in the 1800s. They were the ones that founded the the International Religious Liberty Association. And part of that was to protect themselves from the Sunday blue laws that were being talked about as being brought in but they also wanted to become non-combatants in the Civil War. There's a whole lot of reasons that they began this religious liberty 
but it's carried on today and people probably don't realise it's the church. They actually allow other church members or other people to be um, the president of the International Religious Liberty Association, but they're the CEO and they're most of the board members. Wow. You know, it's still very much protecting the Seventh-day Adventist church beliefs. Wow. That's what it's been set up to do. But they allow people to have choice, and so they are protecting other religions as well. And this idea that it's a moral choice that you decide you're going to give up all of these things because that means that you are spiritually pure. Wow. And flesh meat, Ellen G. White taught, flesh meat defiled people, not only men but women and children, and it defiled them spiritually, physically, and morally. So, you know, this is a really, really powerful statement. And if you consider, I've mentioned that this, their diet wasn't possible till different foods were invented. Well, John Harvey Kellogg invented these foods and his father had been part of the church from the beginning. He didn't send his children to school. John Harvey Kellogg didn't go to school because his father, they just kept teaching, it's about to be the end of the world. They're an apocalyptic church. Ellen G. White taught that it was going to happen in her lifetime. Jesus was going to come back. And the reason they blame that he hasn't come back is because not enough people have given up meat. <laughs> this is why he's not coming back. So you, you look at John Harvey Kellogg, he was only 12 years old when he went to work for the first family of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was 12 when he was typesetting her sermons, her testimonies to the church, and also this book, um, A Solemn Appeal to Mothers. In this book, she spoke only of mums, mothers deterring their children from masturbation, and she blamed meat as the major cause. Not the only cause, but the major cause. And so imagine being a 12-year-old. I don't know if you remember what it was like when you were 12. <laughs> Very impressionable. And, and, and also um, quite worried about the world at 12. You know, you're just starting to become a little bit of an adult. You're losing some of your childhood beliefs. and coming out into the world and writing that meat will cause epilepsy, blindness, a decaying head, inwardly decaying head, and she had the words and here typeset as if you put a pistol to your heart and took your own life. Crazy. Blame, blamed it on everything, um, becoming an imbecile, you know, just a whole lot of scary things, criminal behaviour. So here's a young boy, is it any wonder when he grew up? And they paid for him to become a doctor. They paid for his medical education. That his life was spent creating foods to take the place of flesh, meat, milk, and butter and marketed as health food. <laughs> it's just one of my favorite sayings from Tom Clancy, a fiction writer, who says it, the only difference between fiction and nonfiction is that fiction has to make sense. That's why this story is just so bizarre. Yeah. But people hear it and they go, Wow, I, like it makes sense to them. It, it it's outlandish, but it also makes sense. It explains so many. It makes sense. Different things, and maybe this is a good time to introduce the blue zones. What in the world does all of that stuff have to do with a few demographers looking at places around the world where people seem to live a little bit longer that morphed into this concept of blue zones? How do, how do those two things converge? I love this idea. I think I, I've looked a lot at ancestral health. And certainly the First Nations peoples here in Australia and how they're very much connected spirit to people, people to place and place to culture. They've 65,000 years. They think they're probably one of the oldest 
continual living cultures in one place. And they were very much in, you know, they, they cared about the land and they realised they had to save and protect areas. They had to protect animals at different times in their lives. You know, their, their whole thing was, you know, we're part of a circle, which I guess I loved with um, this concept of death in the garden. You know, it's about birth and death and rebirth and, and looking at this continual circle. This is what the First Nations people in Australia were just totally committed to. And that is why when Western A. Price came in the 1930s, he came to Australia, he was just blown away. He'd found pockets of communities all around the world that had health and longevity. And in particular, the Australian Aboriginal people were just, they had beautiful jaws, they had phys- they were physically fit, physically well, and he was just amazed at the land that they had um, cultivated. Well, cultivated, they didn't cultivate it, they, they'd protected and, and nourished as part of this circle of life. And so I guess the Blue Zones came a little bit about from, I would think, from Weston A. Price's work, where he found these pockets of people that were unaffected by industrialised Western food. So in, in 1999, I think that um, Giovanni Pess and uh, Michel Puller had been looking at how do we consider this health and longevity? You know, where we, we're looking at people who maybe are centenarians and super centenarians. They really wanted to try and explain the, as a demographer the geography, the culture, all sorts of things to help explain why some people appeared to have this amazing ability. And so they looked specifically at um, Sardinia in Italy. And as they were looking at this area, they were using a blue highlighter pen and the blue highlighter pen just ended up covering this entire space. So that's how it became the blue zone. And, and they made the comment about Sardinia in particular that there were no Western hospitals there. There was no hospital in this area where there were supercentenarians. So they were discussing the concept that these people had ancestral diets. They were, they were isolated communities. They were self-sustaining communities. They were growing crops. They were tending to their livestock. They were fishing. They were doing all of those things. So they're eating unprocessed food. They were part of a very close-knit community. They were out in the fresh air. They were lots of things. Interestingly, they didn't get a lot of sleep in Sardinia. They were quite a, um, a, a group of people. Well, maybe they slept in in the mornings, but they stayed up late at night and, and had a lot of community, quite a bit of drinking, and, and they had a lot of celebration times. You know, they were quite involved where they'd share their food. But this food included raw milk from sheep and goats that they tended. It included fish. It included pigs and lard. And, and I think when I looked into this blue, oh, sorry, into the blue zone areas that they were, they were looking at, we've got Okinawa in Japan, got Nakoya in Costa Rica, and Ikaria in Greece. And they determined these four areas in particular seemed to be really suiting their, their concept of community um, isolated small communities that really relied on each other and relied on the produce that they were able to grow and produce and um, access. They then made the comment that potentially these groups then had some access to some Western medicine, maybe in their 70s or 80s, that gave them that extra benefit because when they looked 
at people who were younger and who'd already had access in these communities to processed foods, their life expectancy was nothing compared to these people they'd found were already centenarians or super centenarians in 1999. So, you know, we're talking about a longevity pill that maybe doesn't even exist anymore. In 2004, Dan Butner contacted, was contacted by National Geographic, or he contacted them, I'm not sure which, and they determined that, you know, where's this longevity pill? You know, we've heard some research being produced about these blue zones. How can we sell this, I would think? How can we sell this to America? How can we sell this to the world? And so, you know, where's the fifth blue zone? Hmm, California? Uh, How did you know? Convenient. (laughs) Convenient. Loma Linda is the fifth blue zone that Dan Butner identified. And unlike the other blue zone areas, this blue zone is um, affluent. They're very poor. Those other blue zones are so poor, but rich in culture, rich in um, what the land will produce and very rich in um, family connections and whatever else. These people are affluent. They didn't live in Loma Linda all their lives. Most of them have come in as retirees. Not all, but a lot of the, certainly the people who have got this incredible longevity, and I'm not denying that there are some very healthy Seventh-day Adventists who have gained incredible longevity. And again, as we discussed, you know, maybe they included a little bit of animal proteins and fats in their diet. Certainly this community that they come into, into Loma Linda, is so supportive of no cheat days, <laughs> no, no this, no that, you know, they really are very supportive of how they can be the healthiest they can be. But in speaking to people in <clears throat> poorer areas that have belonged to the church, their health is nowhere like they're claiming in Loma Linda. Wow. So I consider this a region. They're trying to make it a, a culture. And so they're labelling all Seventh-day Adventists and they're labelling their diet as the health and wellness component, but I believe it's Loma Linda that's the health and wellness component of a very select few people. Four and a half thousand people are employed at the at the Seventh-day Adventist um, University Church, uh, University um, Hospital. So it's a lot of people who are living there that are working for the church as well. But I think, you know, this is really challenging. In 2009, Dan Butner wanted to commercialise the Blue Zones. So he and Giovanni Pes and Michel Puller created the Blue, Zen, Blue Zones project and it's a copyrighted brand now. This is the pill that everyone wants. So they wanted to create this Blue Zones project and, and it includes the elements of fresh air, walking, um, reducing uh, certainly smoking, and alcohol consumption, but if you look at the other blue zones, they don't necessarily reduce alcohol, but certainly the Loma Linda is zero alcohol. Um, And they just tried to tweak the findings, I guess, to create this plant slant diet, 95% plants. I mean, wait a minute, every single other blue zone included lard in cooking. They didn't have trans fats and polyunsaturated oils, they used lard. Loma Linda 
part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, they follow, they talk about the Garden of Eden diet, fruit, nuts and seeds, but they do follow the clean and unclean meats of the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So pork is unclean. They do not use pork lard. Somehow they've convoluted, and people in Okinawa aren't going to complain. People in Sardinia aren't going to complain. This is an American project that they've tweaked the messaging and people hear blue zones, longevity. You, know, you, you click to all of those places and they've created this amazing utopia and then suddenly plonked it all in Loma Linda and wanting to set it out to the rest of America. You know, we can sell your community a blue zone. And I think I mentioned to you in 2018, I found a document, actual um, document of the contract, and it was going to cost six and a half million dollars for one small city, or yeah, probably it was a small city, to become a blue zone accredited. Wow. So that is, if you think about it, surely that's just consulting. It wasn't, that was just the consulting fees and an accreditation. It wasn't changing the landscape. It wasn't creating bike paths. It wasn't doing all those other things. It was just how the community was going to do it. So it must be a bit of a blueprint. You know, uh, my daughter's a change management consultant. And, and while you do slightly different things for each business, there's a template that you follow. I can't imagine it's going to cost them six and a half million dollars in consulting fees to create this template for a community to adopt these blue zone things. But that's how much it was going to cost. In And so because they're really promoting the Seventh-day Adventist church as Loma Linda and being a blue zone, the church has been very behind this whole promotion. And in 2020, they they love it so much, then in 2020, Adventist Health bought the Blue Zones project. They bought the rights to it. So now Giovanni Pess, Michelle Pula, Dan Butner are not only sitting back from them selling the project for so long, but now Adventist Health is paying them to have this project. And if you look at the website, you know, they say we want to get this Blue Zones community project out into every um, community on the West Coast, everywhere that we're involved, you know, all up the West Coast into Hawaii, this is what we're going to do. And that's a big, audacious um, idea. But last year in 2021, there was the 89th US Congress of Mayors. And this Congress is, um, I think, 1,400 mayors attended and you have to have at least 30,000 people in your community to be able to be part of this. And they passed the resolution that they were going to adopt the Blue Zones in their communities. And the thing is, when these mayors pass a resolution, it goes to Congress and it's accepted as policy by the government. Wow. So you haven't just got the Blue Zones running up the West Coast. Now you've got 1,400 mayors who've said, yes, we're, we're doing this. And do people understand? And I think this is my challenge. I'm not anti-vegan. I'm not anti-vegetarian. I'm not anti-religion. I'm pro-choice, especially when it comes to health. And having understood how this ideology of the Seventh-day Adventist Church has silenced my husband has impacted dietary and health guidelines worldwide and now creating medical and dietetic education and now the blue zones, you know, this is, this is where's the transparency 
that this is an ideology that's come about from a vision from God claimed by a woman in 1863. Do people realise that or are they just caught up in the hype and the media? And I think this is such an important thing to discuss. And do all these mayors realise it? I don't think they do. But at the moment, the media is pushing this plant-based message as being the best thing for people in planetary health. It's the perfect opportunity for the Adventist church to use their entering wedge. Yeah. Wow. That's so crazy. What a nice gig. I mean, to be working for National Geographic, to get in on this project, sell, I want to say nine or 10, like best-selling New York best-selling books, whatever. Um, and then have this project that people are paying into that your town can get certified. And it is, it is interesting to look at his work. Like it looks decent. There's nine different kind of pillars of health that they talk about. They talk about community, the importance of having, um, a role and you know, you keep, you keep the grandparents in the house. They help raise the kids. They can help cook. They do all kinds of stuff. We know, I I heard recently, Dr. Tommy Wood talking about when, when we retire, the concept of retirement uh, right, right off the bat is very, very young. But when you retire, if your plan is to just sit around and sit on a beach, like you're, you're not going to need your brain anymore. And it's a really expensive organ. It's going to start to, to, to lessen its function for sure. He talks about walking, which is amazing. It's one of the best things you can do. The fresh air that you mentioned, getting outside, all that stuff is great. Mm-hmm. Number four, I want to say it was number four is like eat a moderate amount. So stop when you're 80% full. Number five is eat a plant-based diet. Like, okay. Yeah. Then you, then that, that part is all they really talk about. They emphasize and hit that so hard. And then when you look into, okay, what are you recommending for a plant-based diet? You go to another link, you see a pyramid looking thing. You're like, okay, what's this about? At the top of the list is to avoid meat. Don't eat meat. It's recommendation is have a two ounce piece of meat five times a month. I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking about this, like, okay, what is, what is two ounces for you to visualize this? Two ounces <laughs> is a golf ball. Have one yeah. golf ball size serving of meat five times a month. The next one is avoid dairy. And there's no real details about that. The next one is have no more than three eggs a week. So you're eating 10 ounces of meat a month with 12 eggs spread out across that month. <sighs> Give me a break. <laughs> exactly. And it's not what the original blue zones ate. So I think that's, that's the challenge. And yet if you talk about blue zones, it just seems to be common sense because it's been marketed and so cleverly that people think it is a plant-based diet. Well, the blue zones is plant-based. The funny thing was, you know, when Gary started talking about health and nutrition, he said to me, because I'm a photographer, I do graphic design and different things, he said, can you please paint me a blue zones map? You know, it's really important. The blue zones is health and longevity and they're, they're eating meat and all these things that and I created this blue zones thing I was like Gary you were marketing the Adventist church <laughs> 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 I had no idea but he was seeing the blue zones as um Weston A. Price was seeing the blue zones you know um Sally Fallon's written some amazing stuff about the blue zones and incorporating animal proteins and fats in the diet he hadn't looked at Loma Linda the American version of the blue zones um, to understand this plant-based diet when he got me to make this map for him. But I did laugh when I did my <laughs> research. I was like, why are you pushing the blue zones? <laughs> so advertise for it, them anymore. Yeah, it, you know, again, that's the perception. And I think how interesting is that? Gary had looked at Western A. Price's version of the blue zones 
interpretation of um, Giovanni Pess and Michelle Puller's work. And then you've got Dan Butner's interpretation. So you can be talking about the same blue zones. You know, this is them. He even had Loma Linda highlighted. You know, they sleep and they do all these other things, hadn't thought about the diet so much. So I think, you know, we're being health-washed to believe that meat, flesh meat is harmful. And if you look at what happened in 1977, you know, we were conditioned to believe that saturated fat was bad for us. Well, that was the very first White House conference on um, hunger, nutrition and health. That's right. We're now in the process of the second one happening right now. So 50 years between them, demonising saturated animal fats, this one is going to demonise animal protein and I'm really, really concerned. Um, and as I say, we follow you. It's just so scary. It's like pull the yeah. drawbridge up. <laughs> Don't follow America anymore. This is concerning and I have been looking into you know, who's part of this White House conference on hunger, nutrition and health. I, Off the top of my head, because it's fairly new research, I'm writing about it extensively and hopefully we'll put it up shortly and um, Nina Taishos is also doing um, some writing into part of this area that I'm highlighting and this in particular is the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and again like the Blue Zones Lifestyle Medicine is the perfect name (laughs) I wish we'd capitalized on that not nutrition for life but lifestyle medicine a while ago but unfortunately it's been captured by um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Quickly and just as an adjunct plant-based Colin, T. Colin Campbell claims to have named and called the plant-based diet as a euphemism for veganism and to make it more palatable. So this whole concept of plant-based, I actually think is pushing us towards a vegan diet. It's not plant-based, it's plants. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And so now I look at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and I, I, a lot of my research, again, this expert witness for the medical board. He took me to sanitarium. He took me to the International Life Sciences Institute founded by Coca-Cola because his wife works for them. And in his over his lifetime, he's been very involved in advertising for them through his um, journals and being part of the International Union of Nutrition Science. He's certainly connected to the food industry in multiple ways and, and Coca-Cola's International Life Sciences Institute. But when I was looking him up, I found he was the patron of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. And I thought, hmm, okay, well, everything else is a bit concerning, so let me have a deep dive into this one too. And that's when I, and this has been a really big deep dive, that's when I came across um, Reese Southern's work. He did a website called Let the Meat Meat, brilliant website, totally referenced to the hilt about the Seventh-day Adventist Church involvement in the American Dietetics Association from conception right through. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't feel the need for it anymore, so he's let the website go, but you can still find it on the Wayback Machine, letthemeatmeat.com, and his work is incredible. Um, part of my research and understanding going back, and I think we skipped this bit, and so I'm going to throw it in there and just totally ruin our timeline, but... John Harvey Kellogg's protege, Lena Cooper, founded the American Dietetics Association. She was immersed 
in Adventism, the beliefs, the health reform message that flesh meat and um, animal proteins and fats were bad, but especially flesh meat. She educated 500 dietitians under her tutelage and wrote the textbooks for many, many years. Her brothers were devout Adventists. I can't find that she was a devout Adventist, though Kate Lindsay, who was working with her and a nurse at the same time under John Harvey Kellogg, was a devout Adventist, wrote the nursing guidelines for years. Um, We're talking about a group that have gotten into policy and and that was the start of the American Dietetic Association. If you read Reese's work, it goes right through the entire way. So I am looking at this American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I stumble across his work and just go, oh, wow, they're really involved in dietetics. And then kept looking and looking and getting onto this Wayback Machine and understanding how much you could access through that. So when I looked at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which is like the, the parent body of lifestyle medicine, which the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine calls themselves a sister organisation, but really the American College are the ones who are writing the exams. They're writing you know, all the resources that the other colleges around the world are to use and the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine, you know, to be board accredited and all of those things. They all, the hub is actually in America. So understanding that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine was founded as the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine on the Loma Linda University campus in 2003. So that was completely unexpected, but shouldn't have been really when I was starting to look into all of these things. So it was founded by nine very devout Seventh-day Adventists who are still mostly very involved in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in exam writing, in resource writing and whatever else. They became the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in 2004 and Walter Willett joined the advisory board. I think, and just from my research going back to the affiliation between the College of Medical Evangelists, which became Loma Linda University, so Seventh-day Adventist Church's education and Harvard University, particularly the Harvard School of Public Health, their collaboration from the 1940s it made complete sense when you read Walter Willett saying how wonderful Fred Stair and Mervyn Harding's work was that he may have said to them, the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine isn't going to go beyond these walls. I think you need to rename it yeah. and I'll come on board as a, as a board member because he's not a Seventh-day Adventist but he's very much aligned with their health message. Or, and, and, I, and I go back and I just, Gary was talking about the science. He was talking about essential proteins, essential fatty acids, essential vitamins and minerals, and the fact that we can have non-essential carbohydrates in our diet, but they are non-essential. You don't have to have them. And I looked at the non-science. If you look at the public health messaging of the sugar and the food industry, and, and, and again, I jumped into Fred Stair here because he was working with Mervyn Harding. He, um, Mervyn Harding was a devout adventist who wanted to prove, not disprove divine inspiration. And so he went to Harvard University to do his PhD thesis to prove that vegetarianism was healthy. The public health messaging of the, I'll say in particular, sugar industry that was funding Fred Stair and the food industry, in particular, cereal industry that was pretty much bankrolled the Harvard School of Public Health, their public health messaging was to minimise the harms of sugar. Then you've got a church that wants to promote 
fruits, nuts and seeds, the Garden of Eden diet. They've developed this unusual symbiotic relationship. I think they're just gone, you know what, we can get this message bigger and better if we work together. We want to minimise sugar, the harms of sugar. We want to promote the Garden of Eden diet, so let's demonise animal proteins and fats. And that way we can present a plant-based diet as health. It, it makes so much sense when you look at it. So Walter Willett has written about Fred Stair and Mervyn Harding's work. So for him to then join the American College of Lifestyle Medicine makes total sense. You've got a group of people who have got no financial conflict. They've come to this space because they believe they've been commissioned to hasten the return of Christ. And to hasten the return of Christ means becoming a medical evangelist and promoting the health reform message. It's unbelievable. And whether that's through education, whether that's through being a doctor or a dietitian, whether that's through the, you know, the actual health institutions, or whether that's through their food industry arm. And Sanitarium provides fact sheets for doctors. You know, they provide health and wellness programs, all of these things. So the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, if you look at the web, because you, you can see the website and how many times, you know, it's sort of how much activity was happening on the website when you look at this Wayback Machine. And in 2009, that was just sort of petering along. In 2009, Stephen Blair joined their advisory board. Also, Eddie Phillips, who's very much involved in Coca-Cola's exercises medicine. But Stephen Blair has been promoting exercises medicine. He's been found and called out through Gary Ruskin and other people from the US Right to Know and certainly in Australia. They said, you know, he's really been so funded by Coca-Cola. Again, why is Coca-Cola on the board of a Seventh-day Adventist health reform message? And I just think they just working together, they're so intent on demonizing animal proteins and fats to promote processed food, health food, sorry, health food. <laughs> um, you know, how did this happen? How it makes no sense, but it does. And when you see the growth of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, once Coca-Cola got involved and Sanitarium was also um, sponsoring their events in 2014, 2013, sorry, they had Coca-Cola, the entire range, all their brands were sponsoring American College of Lifestyle Medicine and Sanitarium as well, their food companies. Also in America, the Adventist Church owned two or three food industries earlier on, but I think your taxation and questioning on the charitable things, they weren't making enough profit. So I believe that Sanitarium came in and took over Loma Linda Foods for a little while. Oh, wow. But in the end, in the end, I think you've still got some foods that are owned by Seventh-day Adventists, but the church doesn't own any actual food industries in America now. But as I say, they've got, they own 21 worldwide and they certainly own an inter-American one down in Mexico that would feed into your um, foods. But, you know, this is a group that has ended this, yeah, symbiotic relationship with Coca-Cola. Interestingly, in 2015, Anahed O'Connor, the New York Times, called out the Global Energy Balance Network as a front for Coca-Cola. The Global Energy Balance Network actually partnered with the international board of, oh, it's called the Glimmer, the Global Lifestyle Medicine Association. 
David Katz said, a glimmer of hope, and I, that's how I remember the the, um, uh. the the letters. So here we've got this glimmer of hope being organised. David Katz and Dan, Dan Butner were involved in that, and that's how they were bringing the Blue Zones into the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in 2013, 2014. So the Global Energy Balance Network gets called out as a front for Coca-Cola. I can't tell you what ripple effect that had in lifestyle medicine. The European Society of Lifestyle Medicine completely dissolved. They got rid of their URL. The only way I could find it was going through the Wayback Machine, finding different links that had happened through the American College and realising, you know, where did it go? They did a shuffle of board members. Like it was, it was obviously very impacted by their um, connection to the Global Energy Balance Network in Australia. Yep, let's change our URL. Let's do this. Let's do that. <laughs> the American College of Lifestyle Medicine didn't change I couldn't have done half my research if they had changed theirs as well. So wow. very lucky they didn't change, but they've certainly added and changed and altered a lot of things and gotten rid of a few bits that might have looked like they were involved. Stephen Blair stayed on the board until 2020. So I'm just blown away by this American College of Lifestyle Medicine and their influence on medical education, health education. They don't just educate doctors, but it goes beyond that. But they are getting into medical education in universities in America. Of course, Harvard University, Loma Linda, Stanford, and quite a few others, they want to make it medical education in every single university. And in so coming back to the White House conference on um, hunger, nutrition, and health, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine have very kindly donated $24.1 million worth <laughs> of donation. And you go, oh, that's amazing, until you look at the fine print and realise they're offering 5.5 hours of a resource that they've already created. It's already sitting on their website. It will cost nothing for them to open it up to 100,000 doctors. Do these doctors have any idea they're about to be immersed in education by the Seventh-day Adventist Church and Coca-Cola? They're about to go into this thing and learn how to write prescriptions I'd say not quite the energy balance model, but it is. It's learning how to write prescriptions to move more, eat less meat. Yeah, this is unbelievable. So 100,000 doctors, if they do that 5.5 hours and the resource that they've picked is, is quite a, a safe resource, it doesn't go too much into their dietary beliefs. So these people will go, oh, wow, no plant-based lifestyle medicine. This, this sounds amazing. I'll do another one. How much money are the American College of Lifestyle Medicine going to make? Honestly, they're growing so big now. If you look at all the spots they're running exams around the world, if you look at where they're, I think they've got little dots on a map showing how much influence they're having in different places, and then you add it to the dots from the blue zones, and then you add it to the dots of the 84 hospitals that are in America that are owned That's by right. the Adventist Church. That's right. And you and you put all these dots together, there is not much clear space um, that's not surreptitiously getting this Adventist health reform message coming from at the bottom. It's not like a top-down one like the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab trying to tell everyone they've got to cut out meat, exactly like you were talking about with the blue zones. They're just doing it from the bottom up and they're health washing this message. So consider 100,000 doctors then decide to sign up to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. 
They've got acidic exams that are written by devout Seventh-day Adventists. They're going to learn about how bad flesh meat is. This is really, really scary. And the amount of money that they are set to make from their donation, I can't even begin to work out how much that would be. The other thing they have donated is for 1,400 health professionals to have a half price um, membership. So who pays the other half? Half price, half price membership costs nothing, but then they're going to get the other half, the $750 US. Are they getting it from the people who are going to sign up? Are they getting it from the government? You know, I, I, I just think this is a really important thing and, and Nina and is writing something about this at this point in time. So I'm very excited to see where that goes. I think, you know, this is, this is what we've got to challenge. It's not if you are a Seventh-day Adventist and you want to follow and you choose to follow these things, I have no issue with that. The amount of influence they've got shaping our dietary and health guidelines, the amount of influence they're getting into the public psyche about their health reform message and what are they using that for to grow the church, to grow the church to then take the message even further. I think I don't know if I told you, but they have God pods in remote communities in the South Pacific. They drop them down and all that is on this God pod, you can't listen to music or anything else, it's just Ellen G. White's writings, Wait. just her trying to teach tribes who've got no idea where this is that they have to give up meat. Wow. Never heard of that. Yeah, God pods they're dropping into from planes into remote <laughs> tribal communities. Wow. It's a bit, you know, I'm sure I saw a, a funny um, documentary about tribes getting technology at some stage. Well, that just reminded me of it. But, yes, so this message that they're taking into, in particular here in the South Pacific, which is the so concerning, is that these people are already getting sick from Western foods and Coca-Cola, polyunsaturated oils, and now they're taking this message in that they can't fish, they can't eat any meats, they can't have raw milk. I have no idea how bad this is going to get for people. And yeah. I just want transparency. I just want people to understand that a lot of this messaging is coming because of an ideology and a belief that this will be their salvation. Yeah. Wow. That is incredible. I just, the, the message is very subtle. The, the company that I used to work for, a big, large corporate gym, they have a magazine that they put out every month. And I was just in my mm -hmm. client's house yesterday and I'm flipping through it and I'm looking and I'm like, oh, like on the cover of the last two or three episodes has been vegans and every recipe that you see has been vegan. I'm like, wait a second. We weren't like, we were okay with vegetables and telling people to eat balanced diets, but we were never pushing yes. fully plant-based vegan diets. And sure enough, I found a magazine from five years ago. It's got ghee. It's got grass fed butter. It's got salmon. There's all kinds yeah. of recipes with meat in them. You don't see that mm -hmm. anymore. They don't, they don't offer it. It's like the grocery store down the street where like the shelf of butter just gets a little smaller and a little smaller. And the section that has plant-based, you know, plant-based yeah. butter is what they call it, just gets a little bigger and it's taking up way more real estate than the real butter. And and you're right. Yeah. Like if you don't know what you're looking at, what you're up against, you just hear blue zones, great, plant-based, awesome, eat more <laughs> vegetables, great. And you're gonna do this yeah. and really cause a lot of harm. You're gonna miss out on a lot of nutrients. The 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 message is not based on science, just like the blue zones. It's an observation. 
and a poor one at that. They're cherry picking what things they want to tell you and what they want to promote. And and you're right. The, the amount of harm that is going to come from normal people who don't consider all of that is going to be tremendous. And, and I really liked Ben Bickman's comment that veganism is an affluent, I would say affluent white person's diet. If you look at people in India, you know, sometimes I have people say to me, but Indians don't eat meat. I said, have you looked at the stunting? They're actually trying to take away animal fats from people in India now. You know, the school programs, they're trying to get rid of the eggs. They're trying to get rid of the last bastion of health that these young people have. And the rates of type 2 diabetes in Asia are phenomenal. We have, Gary has people contacting him all the time. How can you help us help you know, people? Um, Low Carb USA, they went um, overseas and just went to Indonesia and, they, and Gary went and Eric Westman and George Ede and a few others. Yeah, they just went, please, you need to help us. We've got type 2 diabetes. It's rampant here. And <clears throat> so I think a lot of the argument is by white people who've been brainwashed into thinking vegan is like some utopia and it's going to save people and planetary health have no consequence of the harms that will potentially occur. And uh, I guess I've spoken to so many people who've been vegan in their past life and, and just become really sick. Gary certainly wasn't vegan. He was eating meat and eating dairy, but he was low fat dairy. He was no fat on his meat. He was polyunsaturated oil to the max. He was, you know, cereals, grains, carbs, and, and it was driving hunger. You know, so he'd have his breakfast and then by morning tea he was starving again and the hospital was providing crap food. So it, it, was, it was not a good um, place. And so, yeah, as we talk about the blue zones, lifestyle medicine, all of these things, they have very, you know, it, they're based on good things. And, and I don't necessarily believe the Seventh-day Adventist church are doing things on purpose to harm people. It is a devout belief and they do not believe Jesus will come back unless all of these things align. So they're looking beyond this life on this world. You know, yeah. this, is, this is just a, a conduit. Yep. You know, eternity in heaven is going to be so different. Um, so I, I'm not suggesting that all of the people in the Seventh-day Adventist church are doing this to be bad. And I think that's you know, also an important conversation, whereas some of the food industries, on the other hand, but then the church owns the food industry that I believe are marketing foods. If you look at sanitariums up and go, it's a liquid breakfast. Sure, they have got wheat bix, but you couldn't eat wheat bix unless you put sugar or fruit or something else on it because it's just like chaff. <laughs> but up, up and go is a chemical shitstorm. You know, this is something we're meant to be feeding our kids. Um, so there are people I believe who have compromised their integrity to promote this message, but like John Harvey Kellogg, I'm sure when he invented protos and soy milks and all these things, he wasn't doing it to go, I can make everyone sick. He was doing it because he really believed this was how we would become healthy yeah. to get rid of flesh meat. That's right. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. to go down. It's <laughs> uh, no, it is. And, and I, when I get bummed out 
that the system is clearly not going to change. Every time I think they've done something so ridiculous, like Tufts coming out with the food compass, it's just, it's so ridiculous. Nobody's going to buy this, yet they keep doubling down and they keep doubling down and now forcing education and doctors and all this stuff. When I get really bummed out about all of that, which is, which is frequent, I just, I, I really have to remind myself that there's people like you out there that are working so hard to get this message out, to do the research. And I can tell you, just, just listening to a bunch of podcasts you know, in the, in the last few days that were plant-based interviewing Dan Bootner and all of his concepts and everything, just that mm. alone was like pretty rough. I wouldn't recommend that for most mm. people. And, and knowing that that's <laughs> a fraction of the research that you've done, I just think it's absolutely wonderful that, that you're able to uncover these things and that you have the desire and the passion to come onto shows like ours and to be able to tell people, because if, if people hear this message, they can at least look a little deeper and they can decide. It's like you said, as long as somebody has the information, they can decide whatever they like. We're not here to tell everybody to eat meat and never eat vegetables. That's, I, no. Neither one of us, no, nobody cares about that. But we're trying to get the facts out because, again, a lot of people are going to be harmed. And, again, your work is just – it's so incredible. It's its its positive. It's, Thanks, it's optimistic, as pessimistic as I get about the system. That's <laughs> why I love mm. – it's, it's probably the only reason I'm still on Twitter is because of you. And I just really love – and oh, thank you. Love your message. Love your research. And, and love the – time that you spent with us today. Where do you want people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? At the moment, I've just got a website, isupportgary.com, where I've got a lot of my work. Uh, I think I spoke to you last time saying, I'm trying to get this other website up and going to separate off a little bit. Uh, Nina Tyshoz said to me, Linda, I can't send people to isupportgary. You know, I can't reference that because you know, it just doesn't sound academic enough. And <laughs> my, gods, my godson, who's a doctor, he said, I can't send people to I love Gary like it, it doesn't make any sense so I'm I'm in the process but I get so caught up in Australia right now we've got a life education it's one of the biggest education um, external things that goes around to all the schools public schools private schools everywhere teaching drug alcohol and sex education and it's it was founded in 1985 and it its reputation precedes it like people just go this is a really great thing it's being brought into schools. This year, they've just partnered with Sanitarium because Sanitarium's the health and wellbeing company and they're going to add nutrition. <sighs> so I'm in the process. I just went, I've got to write. So I'm writing to all the board members to say, you know, do you realise that they're going to teach our children to fear animal proteins and fats? You know, is this fair? Do I have a choice? So again, it's, it's, it's about do I have a choice in what's being taught to my child? And most people would have no idea in Australia... Um, other kids are wheat bix kids. No one's going to question that Sanitarium's connected up and joined with Life Education. So I'm making a bit of a song dance. So every time I try to do it on my website, something else comes up. I've got to, I'm forever whacking a mole. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So yeah, I'll, I'll get there. But I think um, this, is, this is what I feel like. I'm making a difference. And thanks so much for sharing my story and for sharing my work <clears throat> because every new person that hears about it hopefully will just ask a question and and realize that they have the choice but we've got to fight for it because 
I don't want that choice to be taken away. Yeah, we've got to fight for it. And coming from you, um, I think you understand what that actually means to actually fight for something because you you guys have been fighting for so many years to get this message out and you know to, to clear Gary's name and everything that you've done is just so yeah. awesome. Belinda Fecky, such a pleasure to chat with you again. Thank you so very much again for all of your work thank and your you. research. And thank you so very much for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thanks so much, Casey. I really appreciate it too. And give Gary a hug for us too. I will. (laughs) Awesome. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long-form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Balanced Body Radio.